Hey everybody, uh, this is Razib Khan. It is not Dr. Grant Belgard. I am hosting this for now. Some of you may know from my previous appearance on Grant's show on the CRO podcast, I am a geneticist who works in the domain of ancestry population genetics. I also have a quite large mouth. You can find me on Twitter at Razib Khan. And you can find all of my stuff at Razib.com. I talk mostly about ancestry, history, those sorts of things. But um, I am really, really super interested in genomics. And over the last year, I've gotten super interested in COVID-19, or should I say COVID-19 has gotten super interested in me. Through this process, I have met some people on Twitter, which, you know, a lot of people denigrate the site, and I do too, but I have to say that COVID-19 brought out the best in humanity, even though it was a difficult circumstance, and, you know, I I got my, my first shot recently, so hopefully I'm going to put this behind myself personally, although as a culture and as a society, we'll be grappling with the consequences for a while. And so I wanted to have uh, a friend, uh, Dr. Jeremy Camel at LSU Shreveport, who I, I have met over the past year through social media and other forums because he's a virologist who's also interested in genomics. Obviously, he's kind of gotten to be a deal because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. I think Jeremy will probably tell us like every virologist now <laughs> is in much hotter demand than they were in previous years. Jeremy, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, my name is Jeremy Camille. I'm at LSU Health Science Center Shreveport, not to be confused with LSU Shreveport, the undergrad campus in town, but uh, we're like a, a medical school and I've been here about a decade. I am now an associate professor. I came here from a finishing a postdoc at Harvard Medical School studying a virus called cytomegalovirus, which I still work on. And until the beginning of the pandemic was basically the exclusive domain of my research. So yeah, I mean, viruses and virus genes are not foreign to me at all. I'm not a genomics whiz, um, next-gen sequencing, as they call it, or Illumina sequencing or nanopore sequencing, all that stuff is pretty new to me, although you know, I, I grasp all the concepts. But yeah, I mean, I've worked on viruses for a long time, deleting genes, you know, putting jellyfish genes into viruses to watch you know, what organelle the protein goes to, that kind of stuff. Pretty nerdy stuff, you know, outside the realm of what the, the general public cares about at all. So it's usually like battle of the geeks trying to get some federal dollars to do your, your research and and then battle of the geeks again to publish your research again, you know, in some journal. But then, yeah, when COVID-19 hit, I started just because I was mostly forced to. They shut our campus down and told us all of our normal virology research had to stop. And the only thing we were allowed to help out with was COVID-19. And to me, that was less research and more just public health work. Um, so it was really my first encounter, like doing public health work, which usually people think that's utilitarian or maybe even a little bit drowsy. But I found during a pandemic, it's it's pretty pretty exciting. The the moment we're in with regard to like sequencing the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which of course is the virus that causes COVID-19, that has never been done. No virus, arguably since HIV, has been sequenced so much, and I think this far eclipses what had been done with HIV. So the amount of sequencing to watch a virus evolve in real time has, I think, been as a colossal achievement for humanity. And it's been just a stroke of luck that I've had pretty close to a front row seat. I won't say I have a front row seat, but I've had pretty close to a front row seat in the auditorium watching this viral observatory or whatever you want to call it. Actually, there's a lot of politics, of course, that's always behind the scene in anything, not just science. But who gets the funding to do stuff? What does the data look like? 
who gets to do the work, who controls the data. All these things have a lot more to do with politics than they do with pure science. And I think it's just really, really fascinating to see, you know, sort of this sort of a battle of the geeks and the battle of the, the rarefied monkeys that we are fighting over things that we do. And it's, as you mentioned, it's a very collaborative moment in humanity. Like we all are getting together to solve this problem and come up with vaccines and watch watch out for new variants and, and try to understand them. So there's a lot of people who are genuinely trying to do the right thing and do good. Even if you can consider people who work at a grocery store or still willing to go to work and change a tire and do you know what they do every day. I mean, there's a heroism when you're putting your life on the line to do that kind of work that I think also is going unrecognized. It's not just the scientists yeah. who are doing important stuff. It's like anyone willing to to show up to their job takes on sort of an added importance when there's like a giant spike of cases in your area. So I think we all deserve a pat on the back, but there are things to be cynical about at the same time. There's a lot of, of funny stuff going on. It's been interesting just crashing into it at a whole bunch of different levels over the last year. Yeah. So I guess one thing I want to make it clear to the listener is there's genomics and there's genomics. So the human genome has about 3 billion base pairs. That's about the same size as most mammals. I think there are some birds are a little smaller, but, uh, you know, that's the range. So viruses, they're small, right? Like, I mean, can you give us an intuition of like how genomics on a viral scale is different? Yeah, I mean, a virus is like a footnote to a footnote to a footnote compared to the human genome. I mean, these are uh, even, well, there are some new viruses out there, like Mimi viruses that are ginormous and have uh, genomes the size of bacterial genomes, but those are really the exception that proved the rule. I had a lecturer at UC Davis when I was, where I got my PhD named Marty Prabalski, and he trained with Bishop and Varmus, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering oncogenes at UCSF. And he, I remember to this day, his colorful analogy from like some virology class he gave to us. There's a good size range of genomes for viruses. You have little tiny ones like circoviruses and then things like HIV that are about nine kilobases. So that's, you know, 9,000 chemical units long, like ATGC or AUGC in RNA. So it's like 9,000 letters long, which is obviously a lot smaller than 3 billion base pairs. And his analogy was like, well, that's like the dude who gets on an international flight with his like toothbrush and like a handkerchief. And that's like all that person needs to go traveling. And then on the other end of the scale, you have like pox viruses and herpes viruses, which are more like 300,000 base pairs in length. And they're double-stranded DNA genomes. So I can say base pair instead of bases in length. That's like the virus that pulls up with an RV to the cell. It literally brings like the kitchen sink with it. Doesn't trust the cell to do all that much for it, especially a pox virus. Pox virus encodes its own RNA polymerase. So it doesn't, you know, let the cell do very much for it. It's still a parasite of the cell, but relative to HIV, it's a, a pack rat. There's, you know, nice, nice range there. Well, so I, I actually, uh, while you were talking, I decided to be rude and Google SARS-CoV-2. <laughs> it seems like it's kind of in the middle of that range. It's 30,000, which is, which is a good number because... You know, you could just divide it by 3 billion. And so I think that's like, what, like like a hundred thousandth or something of a human genome. And so it's small on an individual scale, but there's a lot of viral particles out there to sequence, right? And so this is one of the issues that is going on. So going off memory, I think the original SARS, didn't it take like two months to sequence it? Like, can you, do you remember off the top of your head? I don't. So that was long before I worked on SARS. So that was around 2003. People in the field call it OG SARS, and SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. 
coronavirus, right? And yeah, I mean, I think gene sequencing then probably was a little slower. Uh, it's I'm looking at the Wikipedia. They isolated it on March 21st. They finished mapping on April 12th, 2003. I think the publication was a little bit later, but so yeah, it's it's on the order of a couple of weeks to a month or so. And this is just for a single you know, like the consensus sequence of the virus, I'm assuming. Whereas today, can you give us an intuition of like how fast the sequencing is happening with the numbers? Well, I mean, the the sequencing usually happens way slower than it needs to. But if you wanted to go right from a clinical sample to a complete sequence off like a nanopore, you could probably get it done in about 12 hours. Mostly what we do is amplicon sequencing now because it's cheaper. But a lot of our first sequences were all done using hybridization enrichment capture, where basically uh, the same technology used to sequence like DNA from Neanderthal bones in caves. You have a bunch of biotinylated probes that are tiled along the whole genome of the organism you're interested in. And, you know, in the case of Neanderthal cave bones, that's the entire human genome. And you're trying to enrich for human genome fragments from cave dust, basically. Um, And there's a bunch of bacterial garbage around and you don't want that. So they're able to enrich for human reads on their NGS preparations. But with SARS-CoV-2, it's a similar problem in that um, when you take a swab from someone's nose, there's a bunch of other junk in there, a lot of human ribosomal RNA, probably a bunch of metagenomic bacterial stuff. The virus may be kind of fragmented and not super high quality. So it is important to be able to enrich for that. It's usually cheaper to make amplicons. So they have um, amplicon protocols. But in the beginning, we were using that hybridization capture enrichment. And I think that those approaches, they would have, some of those would have been possible in 2003. Definitely amplicon sequencing would have been. I don't think NGS protocols were anywhere near the, the maturity that they are now. I, I don't know when the Lumina first came out with their, you know, version zero, but I think it must have been around then. Uh, you know, I think, I mean, I thought the Illumina technology dated to like 2007 or 2008, but I did actually look at the publication date. The publication date of the sequence was May 1st. So they isolated it on March 21st, and they claimed that they had the sequence on April 13th. So, I mean, it, it was still pretty fast. So it's interesting, like, this is partly a technology issue. So would you say that you've been having to deal with this kind of like two-track parallel issue where there's a whole science, there's a virology, which is what you were trained in, and then you have to kind of like learn this genomic stuff and communicate it to the public? Like, there's just two issues, the technology and the science? Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head that there's a lot of smoke and mirrors around that, too, when people get political with, you know, how the work is distributed, how the funding is distributed. The people who want to play games with where the funding goes and who gets to keep ownership of the data, you'll notice that they always want to talk about metadata standards and they want to keep talking about bioinformatics because what they don't want to talk about is the fact that these virus samples that are of interest all come from people. And a lot of people don't have health insurance. A lot of people don't have access to medical care. I mean, there's this buzzword now about genomic surveillance and you know, Rick Bright's leading a really good initiative from the Rockefeller Foundation to amplify the message that we need constant decentralized sequencing of the things that make us sick to make our world more secure. But I would add to that, that you can also make the world more fair and more equal by using genomic surveillance. And that may sound rather abstract, but you know the rich do care about the viruses that are making the poor sick because they can make the rich sick too. And how are you going to get a stream of data on the viruses that are making people sick in a South African ghetto 
if you don't educate those people about what a virus is and you don't give them medical care. So the poor have an immensely valuable bargaining chip in genomic epidemiology, in viral surveillance. But I hear almost no one talking about this issue. To me, it's a great opportunity for humanity to give healthcare to marginalized people. And in exchange, they would provide samples that could be sequenced for viruses or bacteria that are making them sick. And I don't think that it stops at a transaction. I think you have to give them, the, these people, not just the education to understand that they have diamonds under their front lawn, so to speak, but that they should have a connection to those samples forever, like an anonymous code that, hey, you provided the sample. If we get a sequence from it, here's a code. You can put this into a computer or into your smartphone and see what science has done with your data. And no one's talking about that. And I think it's a big global opportunity to make the whole world a lot more secure from the next COVID 2024, or whether it's you know a, a really gnarly flu that's gonna, gonna come at us in a couple of years, but also to make the world more fair. Yeah, and you know, I want to loop back to the politics, policy stuff you've kind of gotten involved. I mean, arguably involuntarily, <laughs> you know, because you're a virologist, you're a scientist. But uh, I want to loop back to that. But actually, first, I want to take a step back because you talked about being trained as a virologist. You were at Davis a little earlier than me, but you were in the microbiology group, I believe. And so you're you're a biologist, you're a legit biologist. Like, you know, I was in the genomics group, so I'm not really a biologist, uh, you know, in terms of like, I start with the genomics and I, and I go to the organisms. So tell me about what a virus is actually, like for the listener, because I think SARS-CoV-2 is part of our world. And yet there's still people out there who don't know what a virus is, what a bacteria is. Like, can you talk a little bit about the biology and the structure? Yeah, sure. First, I would tell you that I think any biologist would say someone who studies genomics is a biologist of one sort or another. So I would I would consider you, you a biologist, Razib, whether you like that or not. I'll take it. I'll take it, Jeremy. And so as far as what a virus is, like something around 8% of our genome is like fossil viruses. So viruses are really ancient things and there's still a debate out there about what the RNA world was, like the primordial soup that life uh, first came from. So unless you're a creationist, it's still not a resolved question in most people's mind, like what the first life forms were. But viruses probably came pretty darn early. A virus, just by definition, is an obligate intracellular parasite. It's something that infects a cell, and most viruses are what we call cytolytic, which means they eventually kill the cell, even if they go through a latency or something. When they replicate, they turn the cell into a virus factory. And that it's basically like harnessing all of its metabolic might into the assembly of de novo uh, virus particles. So you, all the macromolecular synthesis machinery of the cell to make protein, to make nucleic acid polymers, starts to just shift to make polymers that are virally encoded polypeptides or proteins, if you want to call them that. Of course, viral RNAs, and depending on what the viral genome is, the viral genome might be a double-stranded DNA virus, or it might be an RNA virus, but the virus is going to usually encode a replicase or a replication enzyme to copy its own genetic material. There are, of course, viruses like papilloma or polyomaviruses that use our own cellular DNA polymerase to copy their DNA genomes. So there's uh, something called the Baltimore classification scheme named after David Baltimore, who discovered reverse transcriptase and also NF-kappa-B. He's done some pretty important things in science. But one of his contributions was to classify viruses by, I think, seven different groups as to like what type of genome they have and what the replication strategy is. So you can get lost in the weeds pretty quick, even trying to transmit the big picture. 
but a virus is essentially a rogue, self-replicating, selfish gene that takes over your cell and makes copies of itself. Someone called it like a gene wrapped in bad news or whatever. It's usually got a little lipid envelope or a way of entering your cell. So it's a really efficient transfection reagent if you're a biologist out there. Like molecular biologists are often interested in putting foreign genes into cells to study them. And viruses are almost like they're their own transfection reagent too. I mean, they're really good at getting into cells. That's one of the things that in biotechnology they're exploited for. We call them viral vectors. Like some of the coronavirus vaccines indeed use adenoviruses. It's, a, it's actually an adenovirus vector. It's like a gutted adenovirus that can't really replicate and they put a foreign gene in it, in this case, the SARS-CoV-2 spike to send that gene into your cell. So you make spike and then then you can mount an immune response against it. You actually anticipated some of the things I was going to like kind of say back to you. So it's like a selfish gene, you know, so so I, I kind of think a virus holds your cellular machinery hostage, right? And it does what it needs to do. And a lot of the negative consequences are due to the fact that it just co-ops things and all it cares is about its own replication. It doesn't care about you. Like if you die, whatever, it's going to like go all over the place, right? This is what's happening with SARS coronavirus too. But then we have some viruses, like I think like MERS have like much higher fatality rates, whereas others like, I don't know, like there are coronaviruses, I believe that cause the common cold. So I think this is called virulence, right? Is that the technical term? Virulence, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a very good term. And so it's basically like how harsh it is, cause fatality and morbidity. Can, can you like explain how virulence emerges and evolves? Is it just kind of like a random act of God or is there like a logic to this? There's definitely a logic to it. A lot of the nastiest viruses and infections, and I wouldn't confine myself to viruses here, are things called zoonoses, which just means a virus or a bacteria or even a protozoan parasite that ordinarily lives in like an animal infection cycle. It could have multiple hosts, for instance, like parasites. But when it spills over into a human being, you get problems. So, I mean, there's a protozoan parasite that's found in, in kitty litter called Toxoplasma gondii. And in immune suppressed people, it can get into their brain. I even had a friend, I didn't know he was HIV positive. I met him in Oregon doing forest activism years ago. And I found out in, I think, 2006 that he died of toxoplasmosis. And he's a really brilliant, wonderful person. But in a way, that's a zoonotic infection because that parasite, it, it lives in a rodent cat cycle. And when it gets into people, it causes problems. If you are immunocompetent, you don't get very ill from it. But if you're immune suppressed, you have problems. Flu each year, in essence, is semi-zoonotic because that virus evolves in birds and pigs, um, mainly in birds. And its tropism, almost like the coronavirus, is determined by its entry glycoproteins. And it's, it reliably spills into humans each year and then transmit between humans. Uh, sometimes the nastiest, they call them bird flus, don't transmit well between people. They spill from a bird into a human and the human dies, but the virus is not able to transmit from human to human. They like to sequence those. There's a lot of different perspectives on virulence and I'm just giving you more of an evolutionary one and not a mechanistic one, but I like the evolutionary perspective because it explains a lot. A zoonosis, like it has no responsibility to the host. Like a really, really super virulent virus like Ebola, it's easy for that to burn out because if it kills the host very fast and very efficiently, even if it's rather infectious, people notice when there's blood coming out of your eyes and you're collapsing on the ground. You don't get a chance to infect too many people other than like the people trying to clean your body or take care of you in the hospital. It's hard for 
an Ebola patient to you know hop on a plane to a different country, walk around, shake lots of people's hands, go to a bar, do lots of stuff before the disease kicks in. So the original SARS virus wasn't like Ebola, but the people who were the most ill were the most infectious. So it actually wasn't until you were hospitalized that you became super infectious with the OG SARS back in 2003, even though it used the same ACE2 receptor in a lot of ways was a similar looking virus. It, it didn't have this pre-symptomatic transmission phase. And so that's why Tony Fauci got up in, in the, you know, the Rose Garden or whatever it was, he gave a, uh, a warning speech back, I think, March a year ago, and he got it wrong. He, they thought that only people who had fevers or were sick needed to wear a mask. They should have known better by then. How do you think this virus got all over the place so efficiently if there's not a pre-symptomatic transmission? But hindsight's 2020, and in science, dogma is the, the most stubborn and awful force is the arrogance of, oh, well, we've already seen this before, guys. Uh, we had a coronavirus looks almost identical from 2003. Um, and so you have all these public health authorities thinking they they knew exactly what this meant, but they didn't. Yeah, yeah. I guess one thing that people have said is that in some ways SARS coronavirus 2 operates in kind of like a Goldilocks zone for spread. Its infectiousness is quite high, more than the flu. Its virulence is not horrible, but it's also not great. And then it has this pre-symptomatic spread stage. And so it seems like it's a combination of a lot of different things to make it bad. Now, it's not like the bubonic plague, you know, where like one third of Europeans died. So I, I don't want to exaggerate how people get mad at me, but case fatality rate, what? Like, are we thinking like around 1% or so, like a little higher, a little lower, depending on public health infrastructure? Is it something that is optimized in the modern world? I mean, obviously not consciously, I'm not conspiracy theorist here, to uh, just cause havoc because a lot of people aren't going to take it seriously because you're not bleeding out your eyes, but you are going to spread it around to people who are going to die. Yeah, that's, that's, I think, correct. It does live in, in sort of the Goldilocks zone for transmissibility. And I think the IFR and the CFR are two different things. So a case fatality rate is when you've actually had an encounter with the medical system, the bureaucracy, and you get diagnosed, that's a case. So it's a documented case. This person tested positive for SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 virus, whatever you want to call it. And what percentage of those people die? And then there's something called the infection fatality ratio, which is going to be uh, a lot smaller. It's the number of actual infections that occur in the world, whether or not they are documented by the medical bureaucracy, and what's the rate of death. And I don't have those numbers off the top of my head. I should look them up. But I think the, the case fatality rate is somewhere between 0.5 and 1% on average. But if you get up into people who are in their 80s and, and late 70s, you can have easily 10% of them dying depending on you know, where in the world you are and whether they have access to medical oxygen and steroid treatments and stuff like that, especially early in the pandemic when physicians didn't really know how to treat it. It was a higher uh, case fatality rate in those elderly patients. And of course, like different populations have different age segmentation. So if a population is full of a lot of younger people and there aren't a lot of elderly, the, the infection or case fatality rates are going to be a little bit lower. The next question is, you know, we talk right now, and I want to go back to the genomics and the sequencing, you know, we talk about the British variant, the South African variant, and all of this stuff. What was it like before sequencing? Like, how did people figure out different variants? 
their older techniques, whatnot. But how fast was it? Like, has genomics really transformed our understanding of how these viruses are mutating and diversifying into different lineages in a way that's actionable and actually is helping us fight the pandemic? Well, that's a really good question. I think it's clear that we haven't realized or harnessed the ability of genomic epidemiology to protect ourselves from the virus or to take public health action. I think that a lot of the stuff about variants is to some degree more of an exhilarating intellectual curiosity than it is something that's going to protect the average person, you know, in India from coronavirus. I mean, quite arguably, and I'm entirely convinced of this, you won't need to know about new variants to know that if people in India had not been convinced by reading inaccurate information from news organizations that, hey, maybe Indian people are immune naturally to the coronavirus because of their heritage or their the spicy food they eat or something, because we expected to see far more deaths earlier and we didn't see them. I mean, I'm guessing people were pretty worried and probably followed precautions early on or something, because I don't think there's some magical difference about the variants there that are driving the huge spike in case rates. I'm pretty much assuming that it's mostly because people stopped being careful. And you may, there is you know, undoubtedly some role for the increased transmissibility of variants like B117, which clearly is, is better at spreading. But most of all, it's people crowding together. And um, once the virus gets into enough people, it's really hard to stop it. Like it's, it's exponential growth. That's something that someone like you can understand really quickly, but a lot of, you know, the average public haven't had enough experience watching like a bacterial culture grow and taking the OD and seeing what exponential growth looks like, because it is an awesome thing. And it's a scary, awesome thing when it's not like an investment making money or, or something positive that you want. It's, you know, death and fevers and, and more spread. India has such a high population and also in, in the urban areas, a really high population density. So that's a recipe for disaster. Back to what you were saying about phylogenetic trees or strains and variants, I think it's absolutely amazing that we can watch that happen. And, and it's crazy to see one spillover event from like a bat or some you know strange animal in a jungle in China or Vietnam or wherever this emerged from turned into basically a family tree. And I like the biblical example of like Cain and Abel and all this because it's almost like it was one species, but now... Um, that one strain became a tree, and now the branches of the tree are competing with each other. And you have like B117, like outrunning everyone else, replicating more. But there's also some other rogue variants just trying to eke out a living or to still exist. And so it's funny because it was one, and then then it became many, and then many are competing with each other. In the past, you know, with viruses like dengue, we know there's different serotypes. And I think before the advent of genomic sequencing and became so expen inexpensive to deduce the entire genetic code of a virus. And we mostly use serology, which is like antibodies to detect a different strain or a different serotype. Because when viruses evolve or change or are different from each other, some proteins won't change very much and others will. And so the antibodies from a patient from like 1984 that you had in your freezer, they, they might not recognize all the same proteins that the 1994 variant had but it'll still recognize some. And so you're like, oh, this is, this is a serotype A because it has this pattern of detection. 
And then, of course, when you sequence, you can figure out, oh, well, these are the genetic sequences that encode these epitopes on these proteins that the antibodies are recognizing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the interesting things. You bring all these different sciences or scientific disciplines together that have, have like different histories or genomics, which is almost no history comparatively. It's it's pretty fascinating. You know, I see this stuff in the media now, sometimes like the California variant, the British variant. Can you tell the listener, I think most listeners are going to be American, what the current state of variants in the United States is? I heard, so Michigan had a massive spike that seems to be declining now, but you know, I heard someone say, well, it could be its own variant. I don't know. Like, what do, you, what do you know about this stuff? What's going on right now? I haven't geeked out over the latest data, but I've been looking at it pretty regularly over the pandemic. There's certainly a ton of B117 here, which emerged in Kent in England probably around November. Uh, the first sequences really were collected in October, but the, the scientific literature says November. So it came out late last year, and it's thought that that came from prolonged infection of like an immunosuppressed person. They don't have proof of the exact patient who was patient zero for B117, but it's really thought that infecting immunocompromised people where the virus can kind of live in one host for a long time allows the virus to adapt to antibodies that the patient comes up with. So like an immunosuppressed person usually doesn't have zero immune system. They just have a weaker one. So it pushes the virus into a corner, but leaves the virus enough room to navigate and kind of comes up with some mutant that escapes like a major neutralizing response. And then it grows a little bit better. And so it it accumulates a series of changes within one patient. And that's really thought theoretically by the people who really understand the mathematics uh, to study viral evolution. They've got some pretty compelling models that show one of the key disproportionate drivers of viral evolution for SARS-CoV-2 is infection of immunosuppressed people. And then, of course, I mean, there is some baseline change in normal infections as well. But when when you have an out-of-control pandemic, you end up finding some people who are immunosuppressed. And if you're in a country like South Africa or you know, sub-Saharan Africa, where there's a lot of HIV that's unmedicated and untreated, you have a lot more people who are immunosuppressed who can be infected. And now, um, as far as the other variants you're talking about, like the California variant, which has a couple different names, depending on what clade system or nomenclature you're using. I like the pango lineages, which, which call it B.1.427 or 429 after that first B.1. And that has some interesting mutations on the spike that are now shown to slightly escape certain neutralizing antibodies. When people say it's escaping neutralization, it's hardly ever a complete escape. I think the most concerning one is the one they call the South African variant, which is B.1.351. I mean, I've seen it in our own data where we collaborated with a guy named Ben Lee, who's a professor at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City. And that one really does, in our hands, it is, we got some serum from people who are fully immunized using the Sputnik vaccine, the Russian Sputnik vaccine from Argentina. We got their Ben Hur's collaborator in Argentina uh, Claudia Perdonales, I think that's how I pronounce her name, sent us some serum from people who are fully vaccinated. And we saw that that serum really neutralized B117 just fine, but it could not um, neutralize B.1.351 at, at all. Jeremy, you're really, re- you're really reassuring me right now. Yeah, but, um, but that's just neutralization. That's not T cells. Like you still have many layers of your immune response. So I think most people should take heart that these vaccines are outstanding. I mean, they're they're phenomenal vaccines, and 
just being able to be infected is not the same thing as having severe disease. And the most severe disease we know is having bilateral pneumonia, where you end up in the hospital with a risk of dying. And I think these vaccines nearly 100% prevent that outcome, even when you talk about infection with variants. And that's even before we've updated the vaccines to incorporate, say, the spike protein of B1351. There's a guy named Tulio de Oliveira, who's a Brazilian man who works in South Africa at a place called CRISP. I forget what it stands for, but they've discovered B1351. And he has data showing that a patient who recovered from B1351, their serum neutralizes B1351 and neutralizes all the earlier variants. So it really suggests, I mean, that was an N equals one, but it suggests that we will easily be able to update vaccines to crush this virus. It's just what does crush the virus really mean? I, I don't know if it means driving the virus extinct. I think it means crushing the pandemic in terms of hospitalizations and deaths from COVID-19. I have very little doubt that we're gonna control the disease. I don't think it's gonna turn to zero. Even the vaccines are not 100% effective. They're close to that. But what will happen probably is we have a new endemic, what'll be, a, I mean, I hate the word common cold coronavirus because I think that trivializes what all these previous coronaviruses that we now call common cold coronaviruses, there's no such thing as the common cold. That's bogus because I took a lot of virology classes. I went to reasonably good schools and I was trained that the common cold is caused by a rhinovirus, which looks a little bit like a polio virus, but it, it can only grow in the upper respiratory tract or the nasal passages because its optimal growth temperature is a little bit below body temperature. So it's confined to your upper respiratory tract. It can cause you to sneeze and be a little bit uncomfortable, lots of mucus, lots of keeping the Kleenex company in business, but you know it's not that bad. And then someone's like, oh, there's all these common cold coronaviruses too. I'm like, what are those? No one told me about those before. I mean, unless you really were like a coronavirus geek, even virologists, most of them don't know about that. So, I mean, I guess RNA virus people who study respiratory viruses probably know about them, but I, I never knew. And those things probably are all the products of previous pandemics, previous coronaviruses that spilled over from nature. And there's a bunch of veterinary ones. And, you know, it is, it is kind of a trip. This coronavirus that we get sick with, SARS-CoV-2, can also infect mink and cats. I mean, it obviously has a broad host range. It seems like once you've been exposed probably as a child to these common cold coronaviruses, you have like a dedicated army of T cells and B cells, literally for life. I mean, they talk about the antibody, the antibodies waning, but that's, you know, I don't want to sound too um, overconfident, but I mean, from what I've learned about the immune system, and I'm not an immunologist, you have memory B cells that they, they aren't called memory B cells for nothing. It's their job to go hide out. I mean, their numbers decrease, but they, they hide out and they, they circulate. Um, and then if you get reinfected, dendritic cells sample antigen from mountain tissues, and they bring it to the dendritic cell. It's like it's almost like the CIA station or the FBI station or the cop station, whatever you want to call it, of your body. And then they're like, they show mug shots of whatever they find to the immune cells. And when one of the memory B cells is like, oh, I know that dude, that guy got us six, 12, 12 years ago. And he, he, and that that cell just goes, okay, cool. I found my enemy. And it's almost like the matrix, like they make like, 4,000 copies of themselves, they divide like crazy, and then they, they differentiate into plasma blasts and make antibody that matches that target. Or if it's a T cell, it clones out and makes a lot of cytotoxic T cells against a specific epitope of a virus. So 
I have huge amount, like even if I'm not an immunologist, but what little I've learned of immunology from just being a virologist gives me a huge amount of faith in what our body can do to fight a virus. And you got to imagine these common cold coronaviruses that kids catch and that adults catch. We probably get infected multiple times in our life by them. And so it, it, it keeps like it's like a boot camp for our body and, and, and it keeps our memory trained on the pathogen. And so that limits the disease. And because the immune system is so dynamic, the immune system generates a response in proportion to the threat. That's a beautiful thing about it. It doesn't waste a lot of time making T cells against a virus that's having an easy time containing. So if there's a very small amount of disease, you generate a decent response, but it's not like dominating your pool of memory. So yeah, you can be reinfected a couple of years later, but your immune system ramps up and controls it. So by the time someone's an elderly person, you know, they probably have a really good trained immune system against all the common cold coronaviruses. And a guy named Stephen Goldstein, who trained with a famous coronavirologist, one of the very first ones in the world named Susan Weiss, who's at University of Pennsylvania, he was saying on Twitter that like no one really knows how nasty these common cold coronaviruses would be if you were naive to them. If you were like grew up on an island and never got infected with one and then got moved into an old folks home and got infected for the first time in your life with one of these quote unquote common cold coronaviruses, maybe you'd have pneumonia and die from it. Because a lot of what might be keeping these, us safe from the quote unquote common cold viruses is the fact we have pre-existing immunity. And if you look at children, they have the least bad infections from this virus. Now, I don't want to trivialize things like multi-system inflammatory or multi, I forget what it's called, MISC. Like there are some really nasty outcomes in a small number of children from this coronavirus. So I don't like, I don't recommend people being like, oh, don't worry about it at all because kids don't get sick. I mean, this is a pretty nasty little virus, but I don't think it's so, so, so different from viruses that we've seen before. Like the measles virus is freaking scary. I mean, without, without a vaccination, you lose one in 1,000 people and often children. They end up dying of bacterial pneumonia. So that's a pretty nasty virus and it's very, very infectious. So people, I don't like the alarmism about this virus. You were going in like a positive direction and then you're talking about people dying of measles, at least just in the past, you know? <laughs> I mean, well, we have I, a I, vaccine, that's a difference, right? I mean, yeah. Oh, the really scary thing with measles is is the brain disease. There's something called... Um... Okay, Jeremy, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to a virologist, it's like it's like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Like, we got these vaccines. Like, we're like Superman, all of our technology. And then, like, all of a sudden, it's like, you want to know a scary disease? No, I don't want to know a scary disease. <laughs> yes, you do, because it helps people take vaccines. Because I think the scariest thing about coronavirus is that some people think that, oh, I'm going to be fine with no disease, with no vaccine or vaccines don't matter. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Yeah. And the measles thing is called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. It's when measles gets in your brain and like it can be like through seven to 10 years after you recover from measles, you have a degenerate brain disease because the virus has evolved inside your body to infect brain cells and not need a receptor anymore. It's like it's spike protein, if you will. It's called F. And it starts to, it learns how to enter cells without needing a receptor, just super scary stuff. And so without the measles vaccine, we'd have a lot more of that. And it's rare, but it happens. So I think that it is important to freak people out a little bit and be like, look, there's a bunch of freaky stuff that's already around. Don't freak out about it. Like this is not our first rodeo, so, so to speak. We're battling scary things all the time. You just don't have a powerful enough microscope to, to watch the horror show. I mean, it's, it's just part of life. Yeah. Yeah. It is part of life. I guess like the last question, 
uh, you know, you've been geeking out on science. So that's great. But I do have a question kind of more like policy, politics, communication, which you've kind of inadvertently been drafted into over the last year. What do you think about the pause on the J&J vaccine? Like my cards on the table is like, I understand why they did it to be cautious, but I think part of the issue over the last year is making people conscious of the fact that this is a big deal and there are always trade-offs in life, but we need to be a little less cautious because we have something in front of our face right now with the CFRs you know, and the IFRs that you're talking about. I felt like the AstraZeneca decision in Europe and the J&J decision indicates a pre-COVID-19 mode of thinking. It really confuses people, makes them suspicious because on the one hand, this is horrible. And, you know, it is horrible, even if it's not the bubonic plague. And we're trying to convince people of this, like this is not just the flu. And then on the other hand, you know, there's some blood clotting issues. People died. Not a trivial problem. But like when you look at the numbers, they were really small. And, you know, I've told this story before and I'll tell it again. My best friend from middle school died of a brain bleed due to the anthrax vaccine when he was inducted into the Marines. Wow. This happens every year. Like he died within an hour. Wow. Why don't you hear about it? Well, because that's the risk you take. Like you got to be inoculated against the anthrax vaccine. And he, you know, that happens to some people. And they understand that the risks. And so I just think that um, in terms of cost versus benefit, it was a bad call. And now I'm seeing stuff about how the vaccine uptake drops just on the day of the pause. And other people are saying, well, there's other factors, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, okay, but it's really suspicious that it's exactly on the day that they announced the pause that the vaccine uptake has dropped. And I recently got the Moderna vaccine, and I was shocked at, one, how many people were working there compared to how many people were actually getting vaccinated. It just seems that there's a lot fewer people all of a sudden, and other people have said the same thing. They went for their second shot a month later, and they're just like, wait, what happened? Like, there's just, like, way fewer people. Okay, so a lot of people are immunized. You've got the low-hanging fruit. But I also think that this was a communication error, and it's part of a general problem of calibrating how our society and our public health communicates. What I said recently on Twitter was we have the biotechnology, but one thing we found out is we don't have the social technology. Place like Taiwan, South Korea to some extent, Japan, they've done really well. And mostly it's just, you know, they were really early and aggressive about certain things like crush and contain. They were not denialists about asymptomatic spread and super spreading events, like all of this stuff. They were ahead of the curve. And so I think it really showed some inadequacies in terms of our just like social cohesion, social mobilization. And I think the J&J decision is just part of that uh, in terms of just like after all this year of warning people that you don't – you have to take it seriously. All of a sudden, some of these downside effects are making the you know administrators and the regulators be super cautious, which is fine. But now people are just like, well, if you're going to be cautious – why shouldn't I be cautious? Why should I take the risk? You know, I don't know about this mRNA technology. Like, you know what I read about on, read on Facebook, which I don't personally know, but I hear the weirdest things. And I'm sure you've heard the weirdest things. Because I'm like, I don't even know how to respond to this because I have no idea what you're talking about. But you read it on Facebook. Great, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, there's, a, there's they call it an infodemic. Like, it's like a pandemic of misinformation. And you can almost see, like, how Russia and co uh, countries, like, that – 
are trying to compete with us or they're not really superpowers anymore, they can use asymmetrical warfare because you can divide Americans against themselves so easily because, frankly, our education system sucks. Our public education system is not harmonized well across 50 states. And that's a really unfair thing. So it's just like it it, it highlights all these disparities and, and flaws. Some of the virtues of our country, like the independence and freedom we have, are also in some ways weaknesses. Like, you know, in some of these countries like Japan or South Korea or Vietnam, there's a little bit more command and control from the central government to like harmonize a message really strictly. I mean, maybe it's not as totalitarian as a place like North Korea, where Kim Jong-il says probably goes. I've heard North Korea totally has no COVID, never had COVID-19. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> that's, what, that's what they say. <laughs> exactly. Tanzania, too, until the dictator died of it, right? But, um, <laughs> but I mean, what you said about J&J, I think that's tricky because these things aren't done on a completely ad hoc basis. I think they did update a lot of policies to fast track the vaccine development and approval to EUA things. But at the same time, the FDA has, I think, preserved its credibility quite well compared to the CDC during this whole pandemic. And they do have guidelines that they put in place ahead of time. Before they, they gave an EUA, the organization, and I'm not, I don't work at the, the FDA, but the sense I have is that they have things that trigger an event. And the event is we're going to have a meeting and we have to gather the data and figure out just how big this problem is because they have a lot of credibility that they don't want to waste. And if like, they're like, okay, we're seeing fatal blood clots in women in a, of a certain age group. And we don't know exactly how many of these events that they've been, but we've detected this many, we need to stop for just, you know, a week or two and figure out what this means. And then we'll issue new guidance. And undoubtedly there probably are people, I mean, I went to the post office and uh, it was an older black woman who was the postal clerk. And I was like, oh, you know, we're talking. I was like, are you vaccinated? She's like, oh, I was going to get that J&J. And then, and, but now I don't know. I'm like, oh, well, you can you know, go to Walmart, get the Moderna or something. And she's like, yeah, I probably will. But yeah, I mean, I think it did drive hesitancy. And that probably, that hesitancy will no doubt translate to some hospitalizations and probably some deaths. But at the same time, you know, you have to have some kind of a policy for how you're going to approved vaccines, especially on an emergency basis. I mean, this is like a miracle how quickly these vaccines went from, you know, design to first round production to preclinical stuff. But if you're going to commit to that kind of fast tracking, you also have to commit to some safety standards and you can't move the, if you're the FDA, you can't like move the goalposts that you agreed to when you decided to emergency authorize this. It was like, it was always like, hey, we're going to emergency authorize this. But the minute we see something weird, we do have to have this meeting and have like a bunch of people who by necessity are going to be cautious. They're going to be cautious. And I, I would argue that like, yes, be nice if you could like know the future in advance, but you don't. And if they knew that it was only this six out of, you know, more than 6 million cases that it was, and it's limited to women of a certain age, and they can just put a black box warning in there and say, hey, if you're a woman between the ages of you know, 34 and 50, you might want to consider a different vaccine. But, you know, hindsight's 2020. It's really easy to criticize them. I think they've done a better job than a lot of other parts of the federal government during this thing. But yeah, it's, it's easy to be Nate Silver on Twitter with your 2 million followers and be like, 
oh my gosh, this is such a mistake. Yeah, like, well, yeah, it's easy to pontificate and tell people what a mistake is, but it's their ass that's on the line when, you know, someone dies. And if, you know, if you're the FDA administrator who just ignores, you know, if it's someone's sister who died of a blood clot and it's clearly thrombocytopenia that looks like it's related to the vaccine, you know, you're going to tell her that, oh no, we're not going to pause the vaccine for a second because we're absolutely sure that there is no bigger problem here. We don't even need to stop and look. We're just confident. I mean, that's, I mean, there, there's probably good reasons why they did what they did. Um, and I'm not in a position to second guess them. There's plenty of other parts of the federal government where I'm happy to, to second guess how that, <laughs> and even more than that, to tell you very clearly that they're screwing up and they're screwing you with your own tax dollars in terms of like what they're doing. So, you know, we've touched like most of the topics I want to talk about is really great conversation. Your infectious enthusiasm for viruses uh, <laughs> shows through. Uh, it's not virulent at all, you know, just highly infectious. And so uh, I think like hopefully uh, the listeners will get that and understand that, you know, we do. There's a reason we got these vaccines. Like there's this huge scientific establishment that pivoted and did this. In a year, and it is a miracle. I talked to people last spring who were not as hooked in, but they had worked in the immune system space and immune genetics, and they're like, "Oh, this is going to take years. You know, yeah. it's going to take a long time." McNeil was saying, "You know, the the fastest turnaround had been what, like five years, maybe, for the mumps vaccine." And so people were freaking out. And so here we are, a year later. You know, you're you've been vaccinated for a while. I think a lot of listeners have been vaccinated. I'm still waiting on my second shot, but soon. And so that is the definite positive for all the downsides. It's a good place to be in to have these gripes. And so I don't want to end on a negative note. I was going to like ask about the mRNA technology, but I think, you know, we, we've taken a lot of your time and, you know, listeners can uh, can look that up. It's, it's fascinating. There's the adenovirus technology, which is kind of older, but this new mRNA technology, which I think like on the horizon, and maybe someone will do a podcast on this in the future, they're using it in malaria and other things. So uh, it's it's a very, very, very positive development. And maybe coronavirus and the pandemic kind of accelerated that. I mean, trying to make lemonade out of a lemon here. Um, finally, I do want to say I didn't mention your Twitter handle, uh, Macro Leader, L-I-T-E-R, and macro is a macrobiotic. Jeremy Camel, Dr. Jeremy Camel, it's been great to have you on. I really enjoy talking to you as always. You're really good at what you do. And I hope people get to hear from you more because uh, you're clear, you're concise, and you have a definite passion for science. And that's what I really love. Thank you, Razib. I always enjoy uh, hearing you speak as well. You're, I think, much more depth of knowledge than I have about viruses, about human uh, uh, evolution and, and, and people and how genes work. So uh, admiration is mutual. You're too kind, sir. <laughs> <laughs>